Final Wear Cricket Podcast with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon, Season 12, Episode 27. This is an interview-based show, so as we teed up yesterday on The Weekly, uh, we have been watching the Ben Stokes documentary, and uh, after we watched that, it's called uh, Ben Stokes Phoenix from the Ashes, we spoke to the two men who are responsible for primarily directing and, and producing the whole operation, Chris Grubb and Luke Meadows. It's a, a pretty hefty piece of work, Jeff. It's taken them years to produce. We won't spend any time talking about it now. We'll let the interview stand for what it is, but we'll have a, a reflection or two to make uh, once we get to the other side of it. Hello. Hello. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, look, it was, it was an interesting watch and um, it helps when you can get into things a bit with the people behind a project like this, you know, putting together sports documentaries is its own unique art form in its way um and there are there are strengths and weaknesses to the project that we've that we've watched but it's it's more about getting into the conversation with the people who made it yeah and it's really driven the news agenda over in the uk since its release a lot of people have had their say and and it was yeah good to speak to the people who are behind the camera over the last three or four years with ben stokes as they've made this project Mm. uh jeff uh, sorry i'll just say as as for timing they could not be happier with the fact that it has come out just after Stokes has come back to the team, become England captain, and all the rest of it. I mean, it's it's a it's a dream for for yeah. a, a filmmaking team to to get this sort of launch pad, and and this is what they've got. Yeah, I reckon if they had their time again, they would have launched it one month ago or six weeks ago, just after the India win, when they had the four Test wins in the space of four weeks. But you can't have it all. Um, that you're right, though. This is perfect, right in the middle of a Test series, and they've had all their screenings and all the rest of it this week. So the coverage will continue. Jeff, before we uh, get into the chat, let's uh, find time for a little bit of nerd pledge and nerd pledge it's the game that we play with the people on the internet this show is free and some people choose to fund it because they're lovely people and they do that by sending us in contributions not in a normal denomination of currency but in a very specific cricket related number and our job is to work out what the number means. Yes, and uh, we recorded a very long story time last weekend, uh, Jeff, that um, captured a lot of numbers. And actually, that was going to be your last step on the show, but we're doing this from the past to the future. We, we mess with timelines from uh, time to time uh, with the final word. So uh, if you're wondering uh, why you're still here, we probably should have said off the top, by the time you hear this, you'll be in the desert somewhere at Burning Man. But mm-hmm. one final nerd pledge number, it was from Peter Brown. Now, we've done it as a revisit because the story's so good. Uh, last week on Storytime, Jeff, you said something about the origin of protective equipment. And I, in the back of my mind, thought, aha, he doesn't know it yet, but I'm going to tell him about the origin story of leg pads. Now, Peter Brown with number 314 uh, had us looking at round armour, a player who was too good to be a dusty old bastard, but a round armour. So I started talking about Roger Harper and Lasith Malinga and others, but I got my uh, time frame radically wrong. Peter came back mm. to us and said, a big fella, um, think Georgian, Regency, Victorian and Lions. They were the four words he gave us. So... yeah. Um, and I've let rip. So just to provide a bit of framework here. So the Regency era is like a subset of the, the late Georgian era. Regency period is between, they say, 1811 and 1820. And the Georgian era kicks on so sort of, well, some say 1836, but the mid to late 1830s anyway. And look, in that period of time, there was very little what was referred to as big cricket from the Battle of Waterloo, 1815, 
for about a decade, they just don't play much county cricket. The Hambledon Club, which was such a driving force in the 18th century, uh, which organised all of Hampshire's games, they wound up around the turn of the century. Indeed, there have been, there've been games there recently to mark 250 years, Jeff. And we've had the Napoleonic Wars on the show quite a bit recently because we talked about uh, Lord Nelson yes. bombing Copenhagen. We we had the uh, the cricket match that was played before the Battle of Waterloo mm-hmm. uh, by one of the... the reenactment. Uh, one of the English nobility who'd run off to, uh, to go and live on the continent to try to save money. I mean, there, there's been a, a strong Napoleonic theme, you know, really a sort of Les Miserables kind of <laughs> kind of theme running through the show in, in the last few weeks. Yeah, and for a long time, the, the Napoleon War was where they judged first-class status to come from. So you didn't go back to that first game at Hambledon. You, you sort of started in 1815, where, again, there wasn't a lot of cricket for about mm. 10 years. And Now, this is still the era where bowlers are getting pumped because they're bowling underarm. This is just the era of, of just lobbing it down underarm. I mean, there's real no... Um, I mean, yes, they're, they're using different spins on the ball and so on, but it's a, a radically different game to the one that emerges through the 19th century, certainly through the Grace era, um, which emerges in, in the back half of that century. Now, round arm, which was the clue, often gets linked back to a woman by the name of Christina Willies, or Christina Wiles, I think it would be. Hard to tell from the spelling. I'm going to go with Willies. Christina Willies. Willis, yeah, Willis, who is the sister of a Kent player by the name of John, John Willis. Now, Christina, um, so went the story, wore a large weighted dress, which was the style at the time, and she used to play in the garden with her brother John. And because onion her, on her belt? Onion Did on she her have belt, an onion on right. her belt? Yeah. And because yeah. she had to get the ball down the other end with a straight arm, she couldn't go underarm, she had to go sidearm, which thus got John thinking, gee, it's a good idea, I'll bowl some roundarm stuff. And so he did. Now, that's been debunked a little bit because the type of dress she was supposedly had worn then wasn't still in fashion. So they kind of think that maybe isn't quite what happened. But still, uh, it's still a great yarn. So we'll go with it. It still works to this day. John was banned because he kept bowling this roundarm stuff for Kent. Uh, By 1816, the laws banned him from doing it as well. So again, just after Napoleonic war the mcc cracked down on him for using it he was no balled in 1822 against the mcc uh, who were playing kent at lords and then he was so pissed off he rode off into the sunset and was never seen again in a cricketing context he literally left lords jumped in the back of a horse and cart and disappeared he's like no if i can't bowl this way i want nothing to do it could someone ride up waterloo in a cricket match report style <laughs> you know the, the english uh, made made good use uh, good first use of a, a flat deck and racked up 543 you know leaving leaving the french with a mountain to climb etc cetera, etc cetera. <laughs> yeah I, I think well if you say that to our final nerds they'll they'll take on that challenge i'm sure so just to be clear here, banned in the laws of the game in, in 1816. He's no balled out of the game effectively in 1822. But by 1826, they can't suppress roundarm. There are just too many bowlers doing it. And there are these two Sussex guns, William Lillywhite, yes, that name, Lillywhite, and Jem Broadbridge. Now, William Lillywhite is the father of James, who first took England to Australia for the inaugural test match, if you're wondering. Then in 1827, they, they decide to play some trial games where everybody can bowl round arm. So even though it's still in the laws of the game that you have to have, I guess it's your your arm below the parallel with, as it relates to your waist or something like that, or probably your, your shoulder plane or whatever it is. They, they, whatever they said in the laws of the game, they said, no, we're going to ignore that for one game. It's an all of England team against Sussex. And Sussex, of course, had Lillywhite and Broadbridge and they dominated. Now, Lillywhite was known as the non-pare because there was no equal to how good he was as a bowler. That was his nickname. And 
the MCC just couldn't keep up with it. Everyone was bowling around, um, so they said sod it. In 1835, uh, the reference to the elbow being at a certain height was removed. The next blow-up, by the way, was in 1864 with big WG Grayson, more overarm bowling, but that's a story for another day. Why 314? Well, it's in relation to someone else from this era. Abhishek Mukherjee, as is so often the case, has done a great write-up of this tale. It's a story of a man called Alfred Min. Now, we're going to go to August 1836 for this. So the very end of that of that era that I mentioned before, um, that Georgian era. Uh, so I think this will work. Big Alf was six foot two and 135 kilos, which is a massive unit by those standards when they were all sort mm-hmm. of like, you know, five foot four and dying at 47 or oh, something. Yeah. He's, a, he's a Yao Ming of that era. That, that's right. And, and his philosophy was uh, beer and beef are the two things to play cricket on. So you get a sense of the type of bloke he was. And actually, he was coached by John Willis, who I mentioned before, who quit in 1822. He taught Alf Min how to bowl round arm. He was brilliant. He was quick. John Woodcock, who passed away a couple of years ago, identified him as the fourth best cricketer of all time. And the numbers support that. Min took 1,038 first-class wickets at 10 in 213 games, and 63% of his victims were bowled. He was known as the Lion of Kent, which Lion was one of the the words in, in Peter Brown's clue before. So once I saw that, I'm like, this has to be right. He could bat as well. This relates more to batting. He scored more than 5,000 first-class runs. Now, the game I'm going to take you to in the summer of 1836 is a North versus South affair at Leicester. William Mm -hmm. Lillywhite is also uh, in this team with Alf. Uh, But Min, Alf Min, got whacked in the ankle by a local Leicestershire pro before the game started. He was in all sorts. He shouldn't have played. So much so that he went straight back to his hotel and put his feet up and said, I'm, I'm, I'm out. But they convinced him to rock up the next day because they hadn't been dismissed, the Southern team. He came in and made 21 not out. Didn't need to bowl, though, because Lily White dominated as he did. So Lynn just batted, made 21, put his feet back up. By the second dig, there was gigantic swelling in his leg. They, they thought they had a real problem, but he stumbled out to bat at number five anyway with a runner, which was brand new. They hadn't had runners for long at this particular point in time. He went the tonk. He made 125 not out, out of 314 for the Southern team, 314 being our number. It's Min's only first-class century, and mm-hmm. according to Bill Frindle, it was the first first-class ton with a runner, which is significant, I think, for final huh. word, nerd reasons. His leg looked so disgusting after five hours of batting, though, that he was rushed to London. They're like, we've got a real problem here. They found a stagecoach to take him from Leicestershire back to London to hospital, but he was such a massive unit that they couldn't fit him in there with his leg up. So what was the solution? They bunged him on the roof. <laughs> For the 100-mile journey, his leg's about to fall off, almost literally. Gets to the hospital oh, in town, and they considered immediate amputation. Min said his prayers upon hearing this news. The doctors came back in and said, no, you can keep the leg. But they thought he was going to lose the leg. Back at the game, the South went on to take the wickets they needed and won by 218 runs on the final day. I mentioned leg pads. This was the legacy of that. They weren't a big deal until then. And after this game, around this time, round arm bowling became such a big deal, mid-1830s, that they needed to wear leg pads to avoid someone else having the fate of Alfred Min, who with this horrible injury to his leg, missed two years of his career. He did get back towards the end and um, sadly um, his career ended uh, allegedly with him on the take, which is quite often the case. Back in that era. Um, But 
What a big day at Leicester. Everybody was on the take in that era. But but if if you've nearly lost a leg, you kind of I think you've shown your dedication to the cause. Like I think you've I think you've earned the right to take a few bungs to maybe make a couple <laughs> of low scores or whatever it is. If you've if you've made a hundred and nearly missed and, and risked an amputation of your leg. You know, probably it's fair enough to take it. You know, for, for for John the bookie to put a few bets on the roulette table for you. Yeah, that's right. A bit of spot betting towards the end of the career never hurt anybody. It did hurt a lot of people, but it didn't hurt Alfred Bin, who was back on his feet uh, by this stage. And yes, uh, one of the well, the finest day he ever had with the bat was when he nearly lost his leg. One hundred and twenty-five not out from three hundred and fourteen deliveries from one of the greatest exponents of round-arm fast bowling. Well, I mean that all links in very closely with the interview that we're about to have the talk about Ben Stokes being a a, a furious weird kind of character who <laughs> just wants to train until he's hurt who just wants to suffer when he's out there trying to play the game did Ben Stokes ever nearly lose his leg no broke his finger because he punched a locker when he got out mm. but you know it, it doesn't quite stack up with losing a leg so you know maybe maybe uh, Ben Stokes has a few few miles to go before he can be considered in the same bracket as Alfred Min if you are new to the final word and you're just listening to us for the first time for this interview about the Ben Stokes documentary that's uh a, a game we play on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the final word. All you need to do is send in a cricket-related number uh, and that becomes your contribution financially to the show and we solve it either on one of our weekly shows or on Storytime, our weekend history program. And with that, Jeff, we'll take a breather and when we return, we'll be talking about the Ben Stokes documentary, Phoenix from the Ashes, with directors Chris Grubb and Luke Mellows. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. It's The Final Word Cricket Podcast with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. And we have with us on the show today Chris Scrubb and Luke Mellows who've been uh, part of directing and producing uh, the Ben Stokes documentary, Phoenix from the Ashes. Uh, Gents, welcome to the show. First and foremost, how did it come to pass that you two men were charged with the responsibility of telling this quite remarkable story? Oh, that's yeah. That's an interesting question, and it's uh, had a number of years for that all to come together. Really, um, we, uh, I mean, a little bit wider about Whisper. We, uh, we're a production company that work in all sorts of sports and other areas as well. And um, one area of that is we do do quite a lot of cricket, and uh, there's a lot of great cricket knowledge across the board. So, um, so we had some relationships, and we talked to um, Ben and his um, manager Neil Fairbrother early on about sort of two and a half, three years ago. It was the first conversations when he'd obviously had such a spectacular cricketing summer and we thought there was potential for documentary and we built that relationship up with him and it's developed from there. So, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a line here early on in the piece, which is quite simply, his life is a story you could not script. And I mean, where you get into all of this is the I'm done moment, which was a bit of a revelation, I think, when people saw this film, they knew about uh, the anxiety last year that kept him away from the game, but perhaps not quite all the detail. I mean, sitting in the bathroom, having a panic attack on the phone to his manager, it all feeling like it's too much. And the fact that he may not play cricket again, can, can you talk us through why you chose that moment to start telling the story? Yeah, so I think it's because that's where everything sort of began and led to, really. it's um, That interview was done with uh, Susan Mendes in um, just two weeks after he'd announced to the world that he was taking a break. Um, and it was um, testament to his honesty that he we had that interview planned, but he wanted to do it 
there and then, even though these things were happening so recently and so raw. And I hope for the people who watch it, they will see that because of that, it is a raw and honest interview because he, he has been prepared to be so honest about it. And we felt, you know, for the cricketer whose career is still ongoing, you can pick any start and finish really, but it's that was the point really for us, the pivot of what story is that we wanted to tell and that key two years of his life, which is what a lot of this revolves around. Yeah, right. Because, I mean, you got, you got Stuart Broad in there saying that, they, that he honestly didn't believe Stokes would, would play again. And, you know, Ben describes how he was catastrophizing, he was medicated, and just how intense the whole thing is. And interesting you raised that interview with, with Sam Mendes as well. And I was going to ask that of you, whether that was just, by sheer coincidence that you were going to sit down with him anyway or whether you chose to use that moment to interrogate it a little bit more given uh, you knew the kind of pressure he was under, that would give quite an interesting perspective on his life. It was actually sheer coincidence. We had that interview lined up for that date weeks in advance. We weren't really aware of anything else going on and then we heard the news as everyone else did that Ben was going to take some time out. We weren't sure really whether the interview would go ahead but he was insistent. So that's how it happened, and that's how it happened at that moment. You must have thought as filmmakers there's a chance that our film's going to have a pretty abrupt ending or maybe it's going to be um, scuppered. But, I mean, had he pulled the pin right there and then maybe you could have made a program, but it would have been a very different kind of program. Yeah, I I don't think that ever went through our thought process. I think, you know, when we started this film project with him, we knew, you know, it was off the back of that incredible summer and we and we knew that he wanted to talk about other elements in his life and um, including the Bristol incident that go, we go into quite a lot of detail and I'm sure you'll sort of lead to that later. So we knew that there was an interesting film. We didn't know what path that was going to take and we, it certainly took us by a little bit of surprise. But we had also been there with him for some other moments that, that are quite, um, well, very stressful, as Sam Mendes says in the film. So it wasn't a complete surprise that that was where felt, how he felt, but perhaps a surprise that he wanted to talk to us so, so soon after after it had been announced. So I think that was where the surprise came from us, that it was, um, it was so immediate and so imminent. And um, again, that's testament to his desire to be honest and raw. Some real enthusiasm there from him to be part of the project. And I'm not saying that, that cricketers aren't uh, sort of uh, interested in, in telling their stories, but what you're doing here, it's quite modern, isn't it? Having a, a camera crew with you into your personal space, intimate areas. I mean, it, it sounds as though he was uh, as keen as you were to get this done. Yeah, I think he, he all along was um, just very insistent that it was as real as possible. It's not like we were with him 24 hours a day every day. You know, we, we had certain moments with him but he was very giving of himself when we were with him we watched the film yesterday so it's still very fresh but uh, the level of of access that adam's talking about it's it's not just about ben or about the cameras in the middle but the access to his family the fact that his parents were so willing to play along with it to be interviewed separately and together i mean it's extremely intimate in that way um how do you try to go about such a big project over a number of years and get everybody else on board as well? It's not just about the one person who's at the centre of it. I mean, one of the themes through the film is that his life affects everybody around him. How do you get them to buy into it as well? A lot of people have asked us that. And I think, you know, it's not one that we sort of absolutely sort of nailed in one sort of great speech right at the start. I think the the sort of two things we've said, you know, we've already answered that. He, he is a very honest person. He, he wants 
wants to provide a gen- if he was going to do a documentary he wanted it to be a genuine lens on his life um or he wouldn't have wanted to do it and i think from what anybody knows about ben so he doesn't do things by halves and he wanted to do it properly i think in terms of but you're right and we possibly didn't know quite how at the start of this just quite how stressful a couple of years it would have been and i think the real headline from us is that they all felt involved in the project and they gave us both his family and another very important figure in that was uh, neil fairbrother his manager who is very close to him too and i think we were all fairly aligned from the start that we wanted to tell the an honest film and not try and sugarcoat anything in his life they had wanted that and that's why they kind of agreed to the film in the first place and were engaged in it and i think as it went along and some of the personal family moments it was really about making sure that they we didn't just sort of land there one day we um you know mum was on the other side of the world and we've had many conversations over the years to make sure that she felt a part of the story as well and you know essentially it's their story to tell not ours and we're just trying our best to make it sort of connect in a way that really appeals to people and can understand it but most importantly is an honest reflection of their their life and Ben's life yeah i mean the the idea that another line early on is that it's a film about loss in the time of lockdown i mean i suppose when you conceive of this uh, documentary that the pandemic wouldn't necessarily have, have been part of that but, and we often hear from cricketers about how stressful it is being away from loved ones but the added pressure of doing it inside isolation being taken away at an acutely stressful period for Ben in his personal life anyway with the illness and subsequent passing of his dad I mean and the extra pressure on his, on his, on his wife and his kids and all of that I mean it's quite raw in, in the way that um, you're able to, to tell all of that and he was clearly happy with you telling that personal family story. Yeah I mean it, that was the thing all, all the way through he, he just was happy to tell us everything that he felt and he laid bare his, his emotions in, in that way. But it, it was a stressful time for, for everyone, I think. And but those guys that were playing, you know, cricket during lockdown, you know, a lot of them were just going from hotel room to training ground, cricket ground. They, they weren't really able to see anything else. And I think uh, it was a far more intense experience for them as well. He was very aware that, that you know, the stresses and challenges of COVID was something that every body in the world has gone through and, and very keen and I hope you know I hope it doesn't have come across in the film that this is particularly something that the cricketers had to endure that the rest of the world did and I think what we really hope is that people who watch it can see that wider story and see that maybe there's parts of that life that actually they connect and some of the people we've worked with actually found some connections in that and because you know many many people in the world have gone through such difficult times at the moment and hopefully there is things in this that they can draw on and sort of wider above sort of just cricket fans watching and people who are interested in Ben Stokes directly I think hopefully it's got a sort of a wider wider themes that are interesting to other people. What's one of the things that the medium can do that visual medium taking you inside the story is, you know, we heard plenty of times about how it was remorseless travelling around in this bubble and kind of soulless and the inability to get out, the feeling of claustrophobia. But that's really underlined just by going into a hotel room with him and just hanging out, you know, and you realise it's not a sort of golden palace with spa bars and whatever. It's a hotel room like any other. And it it seemed like the film underlined the reality of living that day in, day out for a long period of time. Hopefully, yeah. I mean, you know, we, we spent a bit of time going on tour and uh, 
lived that life a little bit as well. So, yeah, we were able to try and get that across because we were living it as well for, for a few weeks. You also get across pretty early on in the film that, that Stokes feels like a kid that could have gone off the rails in a number of ways. I mean, he's pretty loose, right? Like you, you use footage of him being difficult, you know, in different parts of his professional life, whatever it is with cricket early on. You reference the fact that he's moved house a number of times, which he sees as a positive now that he's got multiple homes, New Zealand, Cockermouth, Durham and, and so on. But, you know, Joe Root's anecdote that he's this annoying, loud kid abusing him when playing in their earliest games as teenagers, you know, he walks past that bloke, Dara, and says, I got in a fight with him once. You know, that, that there is this sense that cricket has been instrumental to keeping Stokes in the tram track somewhat, even if he's veered off from time to time. Yeah, I don't think that would be, we wouldn't make that analysis or not. I think it's really for people who are watching it to take to take what they take from it. I think that goes back to what we hope um, at every stage of their life, for his life from from when he was young, that we've been, we've, we've been honest and he's been honest about the different stages of his life. And I think what is really important to us is not to, for it to kind of take a direction that we're trying to influence or even Ben is trying to influence, to be honest. I said before that he didn't want to sugarcoat anything in his life and lay it bare as it was. And I hope that many people will interpret it in different ways, um, the story of his life and the different things that combined. But we do, as you said right at the start, we, we did have a grand point where that interview was and where he was saying about some of the things that had, that he'd found difficult in his life. And I think what we wanted to show is that many of those things were around what had happened in the last year or two. But there was an element of looking at his whole life and all the different things and how they might have contributed, both good and bad, to the moment he was in at that moment, as much as when he was, you know, winning a World Cup or playing at Headingley. And I, I think, um, you know, I, I think the best films, and, you know, I'll leave other people to decide, the level of this one is ones where which are open to interpretation. And that, that's really important to us, that, that people can interpret it different ways. Part of that is the question of identity, which can be a really complicated one. And that's also interesting in, in what the film underlines in that you think of oh, Ben Stokes born in New Zealand, that's kind of the formulation, you know, and, and it's easy to imagine, well, born there as a kid, you know, or had an English parent or whatever it is. Both of his parents are very New Zealand, you know, they're, they're staunchly so, their accents are so, and then they've got this kid who's essentially, you know, brought over to live in England for 10 years or so before they go back. And then he's got this English accent. He sees himself as very English. He really throws himself into being English at the same time. It's this curious kind of split of national identities, which the family doesn't have any problem reconciling. But it's interesting from the outside that he's he's got these two very strong senses of home on either side of the planet. And then this third one uh, at Cockermouth where he went to play cricket. Yeah, I mean, his identity, he's proud of all all of his heritage and where he grew up, I think he's he's very proud to play for England. I think it's where he developed his, you know, his game of cricket was was in England, and I think that's sort of really why he he feels so proud to play for England. But he's he's aware and proud of all his heritage. We we kind of go on the roller coaster early in his career with you, not in great depth, but you know we get to see what it's like him being on the receiving end of a World Cup final loss in 2016 in Calcutta and, and how that really took it out of him, but then being a, a very, very wealthy man out of the IPL the following year in 2017. So we get this sense of highs and lows, like any normal cricketer would have, but broadly all trending in the same direction, the fabulous performance in the 2015 Ashes, for example. 
And then we get to Bristol, uh, which is kind of the the stop the clocks moment uh, in September 2017. You start that with Claire, his wife, and how raw it is for her when she tells the story of when he's when he's not there and and you know he's cuffed, and you see the uh, the footage coming in from um, the body cam from the police, which I'm, I'm not sure whether we've ever seen that before, but it's all pretty intense stuff to start that sensitive conversation I suppose because you've been close to it how easy was it for you to get access to all of the information you required to try and do a a job of telling that story in a full way in ways that we didn't necessarily know before yeah I I think the I'd make one important point I think on this is what the film we want the film to be is and I know we go into a lot of detail in Bristol but but what we wanted to deal with in the wider picture is really the aftermath and the impact of very traumatic moments in his life so referring back to what uh, I was saying before about trying to lay it as it was, trying to show as many different sides, as many different modes of reporting. About What we're not trying to do is tell the story with a conclusion of everything that happened there. Our story is very much focused on how that has impacted on his life now. And I think the reason I make that point is because it's a very complex issue. It went to trial, you know, three uh, individuals were in that trial, including Ben Stokes and two others uh, who were part of the story. But and it had a and it had a full court hearing, so that information is sort of freely available to everybody. What we wanted to do is, as fairly as possible, try and tell that story with as little side. We're very aware that the contributors are all people part of Ben's family, but in terms of the footage, we wanted to show how the reporting developed the different elements of the trial and how that came through and we wanted to show what happened because it's um because it is 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 a big controversial moment in his life and he understands that and um we we just want want to show it as it happened as much as fairly as we can and uh, open to interpretation for other people about how that you know how they see see that um, whole period mm. but so part of what comes across is that when ben stokes comes out after the trial his statement through his solicitor, is very much about how hard this process has been on Ben. And the film approaches this in the same way. It's about the effect on him. There's still the fact that he's punched two guys unconscious in the street and the court result notwithstanding, he still did that. Everybody knows that that's what happened, whether you define it as a, a crime or not is a different thing. When you were going into making this film, did you was it impossible to present it in any different way than this pretty sympathetic light to him? Because there's not really much, like you say, there's not much analysis of what actually happened. It's about the effect on the person who is the aggressor in the situation. There's nothing on the effect on, on the other people in the situation. No, that, that's exactly it. And that's, I think, why I said at the start, this is what, mm. that's what the film is about, is about the aftermath. We're not... Uh, attempting in this film to try and delve into the complexities that was done in the trial, and you know, at the end end of that, we are looking at a the impact for good and bad on a, uh, and and of course that impact can be on wider people. And we know that you know, just like the conversation we had about COVID earlier, these are traumatic moments in people's life that can have uh, a, a, a long lasting trauma associated with them. We're not we're not attempting to try and develop a narrative that is that is in you know whether that comes across as sympathetic or or not we're not trying to attempt that as a narrative ourselves we're trying our best to make to to show it how it happened but of course from the perspective of ben because this is a film about ben and part of a wider story about what has happened in his life we're not delving into the story and perspective of other people in this film it feels like he 
is so aggrieved about the coverage at the time and not being able to defend himself in, in the public domain through the media, describes the media as pieces of shit, for example, let down by people, quote, wearing a suit and it's always with him. And this film provided, well, he saw it as an opportunity to kind of, I don't know, square up a reasonable definition like with, with, with where he feels he was misrepresented at the time and he's never really gone into this before, right? Like, I mean, it's not as though he does interviews about what happened in Bristol. This is an unusual situation. Did, did you sense that when he was giving these these public comments that they'd be of considerable public interest as well? I think the, the fact that he'd not spoken about it before, he, he definitely did want to say his side. Yeah, uh, I think that was sort of quite understandable from it. You know, he felt a lot of it was misreported at the time. And uh, so he, he wanted to present um, how he felt about it. It's probably, as you see in the film as well, of course, as it was a trial, that during the trial he couldn't speak about it. I think, um, as I said before, it's very important for him to, to to give his side. That's, you know, he's been asked many times about it, but it, it is his side. He wants to tell his story and how it impacted on him. This is not, as I said, it's not a film about that incident and everything. It is a film about him and the impact it's had, right, you know, you know, from, from the start on him and that's not, you know, so it, we've, ne- we've never wanted to sort of try and, as I said before, it's about interpretation for other people to take from that, um, but we've never wanted to take people in any particular direction, but as I said right at the start, there is interest in Ben and he wanted to tell his story and we wanted to give him that without in any way taking it away from what happened and he he was very honest himself and he wanted to say what happened rather than sort of, as I said, a sugar-coated analysis. And I hope that comes across that we haven't tried to sugarcoat anything or change the narrative and that's what we've attempted to do. And by showing as much of the, you know, what was available um, to see around the incident, it's there that you, you see, see for yourself and make your own judgments on it. Yeah, so, so it's not like this is not the platform for him to be apologetic about it necessarily. It's about, as you say, it's, it's trying to place it within the broader context of his life. And, I mean, the next passage that comes out of it is hearing about how even then Stokes thought about packing it in, right, like that, that conversation with Neil Fairbrother in, in the motorway service station. And, you know, we get this sense that um, after 2018, Stuart Broad says he came back as a more professional cricketer and he Stokes himself says it made him grow up quickly. So, you know that is still a moment that's used as a reference point for him as we go from kind of 17, the dignity of what happened in 17 to the glory of 2019. Like, it, if you know what I'm trying to say, all roads go back to 17, even if it's hard terrain for him. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a fair point. I think, um, I mean, we're probably, you know, going to what we discussed and starting away, all roads are going back to that moment where he's actually realised the impact of everything that has happened. But of course, Bristol is a huge part of that. And, and, and yes, it was a very short period of time between that trial and all the things that swirled around. Uh, and we tried to make it look like it was a swirl of news reports and everything and a point in his career, which was a real sort of uh, very, very challenging to a point not long after where he, was, he, he did extraordinary things in the, um, on the cricket pitch. And as we said, those extreme highs and those extreme lows are the things that have impacted on where he was at that point where our film centres on. And I think going back to looking at Bristol, I think going, the, the big moments in uh, Headingley and the World Cup are equally in, influential in terms of 
dealing with that because, as you know, the, the, these are extreme ends uh, of the spectrum of what what people uh, experience. And while we can connect with many of it, we can't connect with that level of of what happens on a cricket pitch when you've just you know started an extraordinary innings that the whole crowd is lifting. And I, I think I think a really important point for us is actually. And and Sam makes it in the film. Is actually some of the highs can contribute to to something that can also be a low in, in a hotel you know room when you're uh, on your own. Or or the highs can be such an emotional intensity that they're hard to process in their own way. One of the things that that stands out. It's interesting in the way that we cover sport. It's often. It's like watching a TV show where whatever happens to a character in season two isn't really relevant by season six. You know, you expect these people to have moved on from these things. What we see in the film is is how much things stay with someone like Ben Stokes. So he's still mad about 2017 and, and how he was treated by the ECB. He's still deeply affected by the newspaper stories about his mother much later on. He's carrying these things with him and, and that seems to be part of that intensely fluctuating character. The the line that jumped out, I can't remember if it was Stuart Broad who said it, but who said that he trained like he wanted to hurt himself. When you heard that line, did you feel like you'd chimed, you'd, you'd hit something that resonated with the whole film? Because that was the line that seemed to echo back and forth through the film. Well, they, they called it his beast mode. And, um, yeah, it, you know, see it for yourself. It felt like there was something, something in that that... Um, told us about him as a person and he's just extreme, you know, and that's, that's one of the ways that he, he really pushes himself. But yeah, the beast, that's, that's the way they all described him. And I suppose it's beast mode that he goes into in the, in the 2019 World Cup final when it matters most. And I mean, these are, these are iconic pictures and moments of commentary that will that'll kind of live forever and you've got a chance to back over a lot of that, great angles and, and so on. And that story um, that we learnt last year about having a cigarette in the shower before the Super Over, which is, a, I guess, quite a, quite a human thing. Uh, and, uh, you know, the comment to Joffre Archer, again, we've heard it before, but, but hearing Joffre say it that, you know, this moment won't define you because he knew what it was like from 2016 in that, in that World Cup in Calcutta. What we didn't know is that Stokes has someone roll up to him later that night asking for a selfie and he tells them to fuck off you know that, that, that that's a yeah, an extra layer of detail that he's willing to give you and and it feels like that you know for all of the wonderful footage that, that is there and, and archived from from 19 it's uh that's where the magic dust for me is it's, it's getting a sense of what's inside his mind at these extraordinary moments of, of volatility in his life both high and low thank you I, you know and I, you know and i, I reiterate it once again is that is what we're trying to achieve is you know, if you compare this to uh, dramas or something, and you know, things don't always have just a Hollywood ending. And he has these Hollywood endings with Headingley in the World Cup, but other things stay with somebody as it does with every human being on the planet. When you go through extreme moments in your life, it doesn't, you don't move on from them easily and quickly. And I think that's what we're trying to show here. And that's what I think hopefully has got more broader re- relevance than just Ben Stokes are actually. You know these things live with you, and and how you handle them, and how how you process them, and you know, and I said for everybody who's who's, who's got you know, in the last few years who will have gone through very difficult times, it's it, it's something that we 
don't easily move on from and 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 how we process that and how we support each other is is a really important broader message i hope for this film fun stuff so let's go to leeds 2019 okay we've been quite deep in in the weeds so far by necessity i think that's the nature of the film it's an intense film but what's not intense in a way is everybody knows how um Headingly ends and the, the, the chase of 359 and that's nicely depicted but that isolation the iso cam at stokes at the end and the use of stunt mics i want to deal with both of these first of all i don't think we've ever seen the iso stuff before is that you guys where where did that footage come from and the decision to really only use one comment through that and that's from his old man jed saying um talking about transferring his desire into very difficult situations beyond that it's just you're just hearing the audio of the day like as the players come up to him and thank Ben for doing what he'd done and, and Ben thumping his pads and, and all the rest of it so the backstory on the on the ISO camp footage and did you have to seek permission from the Australian team to use the stump mics because they're normally not turned up so presumably that's been collected that that um that audio but obviously never been in the public domain beyond the little snippets we hear on television I'll pick up the footage and then Luke can pick up on the decision to use those quotes from his dad which I think is a sort of separate thing and a, a sort of editorial decision we made. Um, I think in terms of footage, it, it, it's all there. It was covered, you know, at the time in this um, country brilliantly by um, by uh, broadcast teams um, and and essentially we, we do rights negotiations to have that footage. And like many, many fantastic um, sports all around the world, the, co- the, the coverage is there and it's just having a platform to really tell it in a story like we did, we could. And, you know, there's, there's been some good films in the past, this film, uh, The Edge, which um, uh, we were big fans of, um, and some of the team who worked on that were, you know, including our film editor worked on this. And um, that footage is there, but it's getting the format and the storytelling to actually be able to tell that in a way that becomes interesting. And, you know, that was, that was a moment with the build-up. And so it is more about having that format to do it and ECB were uh, a big part. They own the rights in this country and they were supportive of the film um, and um, and the use of the footage and, um, you know, we're very grateful. Again, just like with Ben, of wanting, wanting to show that honest depiction of what it takes to play cricket at that level and what we're certainly not trying to depict there was any kind of uh, specific behaviour from the Australian team or the English team. What we wanted to show was the intensity you know, and again, this is what we're trying to tell is all those highs and those lows and all those things and actually see what somebody might go through, not just him, his whole team, and all those little moments and how how the Australians very effectively do in um, do things to distract and to and to win a game of cricket, which is absolutely fair enough. And it's um and it nearly worked, but on that occasion Ben Ben, ben managed to um back through. So that's kind of the, hopefully covers that element. And I'll just um, yeah. As, as far as how, how we dealt with the whole Headingley innings, it just the whole um, you know not saying it was greater or you know than anything else or or whatever. It is it is what it is. But it felt very representative of Ben as a person, and and I think the the whole sort of story there just felt um, like it. it it showed a lot about um, all of his um, personality traits and so everything else that came in there, the quotes from Stuart Broad and his dad, they all felt like it all came together with this this one thing that depicted his personality. So that was why there was a lot in there and particularly from his dad because obviously 
his, his dad was very influential in, um, in his life and in his sport and career. So that was really why we used so much there. Mm. It's also interesting the way you approach it, approach the story of his father because he's very present in parts of the film and, and then you, you deal with his death almost elliptically. You touch on the funeral, but um, that's not a major part of the focus. It's the point where he's there and the point where he's not there and the bit that lies in the middle is almost unspoken. And then that, that really seems to sharpen the episode where the Sun newspaper are, are publishing a past tragic story about Ben's mum from years and years ago and, and just how defensive of her and how angry about that he is, which would be exacerbated by the fact that she's now isolated. But she's such a strong character. I mean, you, you couldn't have anticipated that this would be part of the film, but the way that she comes through, does that interview on camera about everything that's happened, um, the fact that you underline that she's still working as a victim support officer for people who've been through traumatic crimes when she's also been through them. I mean, she seems an extraordinary human being. Yeah, I mean, I, I deliberately try to avoid anything, any kind of interpretation from us, but I'll make an exception there because um, we're absolutely wowed and stunned by her and uh, through this whole process and some of the difficult subjects and uh, yeah I think you know I, I think she's uh, she's a big part of this story and I hope I hope for people who watch it you know they will see how important she has been and uh, yeah we share your thoughts on, on on how impressed we've been with her and it's she who draws the whole thing together in the end really isn't it where she uh, explains that you know Ben's father dying the pandemic all that had gone on in his life before, and Ben adds to this by saying that after his old man died that he, he found it hard to know what he was playing for, but she's able to put the bits together which explain where he gets to by the middle of 2021. It's not so much Ben doing it, it's his mum being able to observe these different component parts which led towards the breakdown where the film begins. Yeah, I think probably at the time Ben probably wasn't aware himself. It, it needed someone else to to, to be able to notice that around him and, and whoever than a mother to to do that and he watches the interview back you know, we've referred to the sam mendez interview a couple of times but i mean you go back there to the to the end and and ben his words are, it's a real eye opener as to how fucked i was back then you know in 2022 eyes looking at himself in 2021 how emotionless the responses are like he's almost got the thousand yard stare going on a couple of times and that leads towards him acknowledging that mental health will be something that he needs to manage at different points in his life, he, he refers to something else might drag him back into that space again. And then when he becomes test captain, which is the very end of the film, really, it's Ben Stokes going out there talking about the importance of, of positive mental health and, and being able to discuss this. So he's sort of taken on a new portfolio, if you like, having had his own experiences in the last couple of years. Yeah, I think, you know, and as we said already, I, I think that this is the for us, the important element of the film, and Ben spoken in the last couple of days about the sort of the questions he had around the time of being captain and the, the links to his honesty around mental health. And I think we're showing that actually, when you know, why the story then then just Ben, but when you go through a series of traumas and how you deal with them and how you can process them is an extremely difficult thing to do and it all depends of course on what you've been through and what you're living through but I think you know it's it's not to you know a bit of a pedestal here but it's not it's not to put mental health into a you know into, into a sort of a bad term or something that weakens somebody or somebody something that means that they are not capable of doing things I think Ben is proof 
that you know to deal with these things and to be honest about mental health makes him an even more capable person and an even more capable person as captain an even more capable person looking after his teammates and uh, and that there's not a sort of um yeah there's not a taboo around that i think and i think that's the great credit of him and i really i really hope that's what people uh, take as a real positive from, yeah. from this film yeah i mean it's it's a it's a great story and by great i mean it's there is so much to it and you've done a fine job of uh, pulling it all together chris grubb and luke meadows congratulations on what i'm sure has been uh, thousands and thousands of hours of work uh congratulations on on the finished article being out there in the public domain this week and uh very best of luck with all that comes next thank you very much thank you so much take really care nice to talk to you Final word, Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon after our conversation about Ben Stokes' Phoenix from the Ashes with uh, Whispers, Chris Grubb and Luke Mellows, the men who made the documentary. And Jeff, they were fairly clear about how they saw their responsibility in making that documentary and their answers to us. Well, what was interesting was that they 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 were clearly anticipating the kind of questions that they were going to get, especially around... Bristol and around the court case and, and all of the rest of it, that there was a there was a line of argument that was set up ahead of time that it's it's not our job to uh, interrogate what actually happened or the other people involved. It, it's all about the character at the centre of the story, which, I mean, for me, doesn't really stack up that if you're trying to tell the story, you tell the story, you don't tell a side of the story. And that's the bit. So there were a lot of things in that documentary that I thought were very interesting um, and that that gave us a lot of insight into the person at the centre of it Um, but there was also there were also things left out where it was very much uh, it was the Ben Stokes perspective of what happened rather than actually looking at what happened from a a more objective viewpoint. Look I'm more at peace with that bit having spoken to them um, because I think they they explained their point fairly and repeatedly by the way like we did ask quite a few questions about that but I mean I must admit my first impression when watching that section was well hang on a minute like you know Ben Stokes is being presented as some gay rights activist hero here when I mean well your book spends thousands of words uh, telling a slightly different story. And again, I'm not sort of getting into, I don't want to be seen as like a character assassination of Ben Stokes, but there were a number of things going on that night in Bristol beyond yeah. simply what was going on with the uh, with, with Kai and Billy, who you know ultimately didn't front the court, neither called by the prosecution or the defence. So, you know, there, there is a lot there. What I would say, though, is that I don't believe we've seen the body cam footage before, and that does... Um, that has been out there. Oh, that's actually. been that, out there. That, My apologies. That that footage was it, it wasn't sort of it wasn't hugely publicly prominent in the same way as the the footage of the fight was, but it did make it into the public domain. You know, I, I watched all of that footage before okay. writing the chapter in the book and so on. And yeah, the the bit the bit that bugs me with that is the description of, oh, here were a couple of random guys who came in on the street and were abusing these other guys when that's not what happened. Like, that's categorically not what happened because they actually use in the film the security footage from the nightclub, which shows all four of those other guys hanging out together. Like, they were, they had been spending a, a portion of the evening together before the fight happened. So it wasn't random people accosting other people in the street there was a there was a, a a friendly relationship up until that point between the four of them from what we've seen from the security footage so i think that if you're if you're making a film you should be able to find 
to go through the resources that are available and, and find the footage that's available and look at all of it. But I also understand that when you're trying to make a film, you're trying to put across a lot of information in a short space of time yeah. and getting into granular detail doesn't necessarily help, but it, it is essentially showing here is the Ben Stokes version of what happened, which is that he was in the right. You know, there's, there, there's still no... There is absolutely no expression from Ben Stokes that maybe it wasn't the right thing to do to punch the shit out of a couple of guys in the circumstances. It was still set up as, oh, I didn't want to walk past this situation and, and, and I wouldn't have forgiven myself if I did it like he was doing the right thing. If you're doing the right thing, you're not putting someone in hospital with a broken face. Yeah, so he's apologised for what happened that night a number of times, but... Ish. Hear me out. So he, he's apologised with his statements and his public commentary around the court case that had happened and all the rest of it, but as far as what you're saying there, in, in the doco here, there wasn't a statement of regret. And again, that might be editing, and that's... I, 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 I am sympathetic to... This wasn't the Bristol 2017 story documentary. Sure. It was like a quarter of an hour out of a 90-minute film, maybe not even that long, might have been yeah. 10 minutes. So it is, but I, it was I am sympathetic. Big, they... They pinned that as being a big part of the story, it was, as yeah. being as being the turning point in a way, the the thing that that sent him into a spiral initially, sure. and and I can understand that. The apologies that were made were apologies to the ECB, to England supporters, to to cricket in general, and so on. There was never any apology made to the guys that he assaulted. Yeah, yeah, that 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 that's that's kind of the nub of it, isn't it? That there was probably an opportunity to take this one or two, one of a number of ways. Given that he doesn't talk about it publicly, it's not as though we're at press conferences asking him about it after the fact, right? Yeah. Like it wasn't though when he when he made his return to the national team in 2018. I mean, he just wasn't doing media. My recollection of yeah. that stretch of time was that he was protected, understandably. You're not going to throw him out to the wolves there, but equally, there's clearly a lot of resentment from Stokes towards administrators. Um, the comment that he made to, I'm not sure who it was, but anonymous England soup to use the pejorative, that he told him to fuck off and all the rest of it. And the fact that even that comes up shows that he feels he was let down and not supported to the extent he could have been by those internally around that time in 2017. Members of the media, and I'm sure that's been augmented by um, how horrible what happened to him in 2019 was, which was an absolute disgrace. And that's covered really well. And as I said, I'm, I'm yep. glad that in a way they held that back towards the end because it does kind of tie a bit of a bow on a lot of this like you know when Ben Stokes stepped down last year we would have talked about it on the podcast I doubt we would have raised the newspaper coverage from the sun in 2019 as part of our discourse then I don't think anyone was but that's a reminder that it wasn't just one thing that there were so many things mm. it was a build-up it was compound interest if you like and yep. they reached a point where he needed to step away and it was a close run thing as to whether he would come back and I think that's well explained yeah, and I, I have a lot of sympathy for people who are going through mental health problems and, uh, and and people in prominent positions who will speak about it like he's doing. I think that's a good thing. I think that it, things can be more complex than good person, bad person. Exactly. You know, that's, that's not a useful way to look at things. Uh, but it, it, it would have been nice to have some more clarity on that rather than running the you know they, they have interviews with several people all saying oh basically it was really tough for Ben that he got all of this bad publicity and had to go to court but he did the things that made that happen you know that it wasn't something that happened to him it was something that happened because of what he did yeah and I think now with documentaries being made with the consent of the subject like this you know um that they are made with a slightly different slant, right? It's the Ben Stokes story told by Ben Stokes and those close to him. If this was a documentary yeah. that was being made by 
you know, independently of that, you might have an interview from the subject in there. Like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, uh, say, a Four Corners report on the ABC or Panorama or, or something like yeah. that over here. That that would be doing it in a in a different way. Whereas you kind of know front up with this that this is a a sanctioned piece of work, like a like an autobiography that a sportsman might put out at the end of their career, as distinct from a biography that someone's coming yeah. out and writing critically from a journalistic lens perspective so there's that part of it but, so but there's I would more have, and more of that now with access because access is everything and you, you see that with how like the extraordinary sort of candid moments that are captured in this so the journalistic piece would never get and the camera angles and the support from the ecb and the broadcasters and you know mm. these other bits and pieces that the intimate stuff the cricket stuff which is just absolute gold and uh, i suppose is a a good part of this era that we're going through where the streaming services have the resources to pour into projects like this yeah, well, not everything can do everything, um, but I, I would hope that people would look at it with a critical eye, but I'm not mm. sure that will necessarily happen. I think a lot of people will watch this and say, oh, well, we're all on the side of this person who is, who, you know, who's been hard done by and, and who shouldn't be questioned or criticised, and, and that's not quite right. Yeah, well, I, I, I do agree that the, um, if I was to sort of take the pulse of the coverage, it, it's been more along those lines, very much mm. along those lines and in the interviews that Stokes has done. I'd like to speak to him on the final word at some point, by the way. I mean, I don't know whether we'd be given access to him because of the book he wrote. I suspect we probably wouldn't, but I'm attracted to the idea of like sitting down with him. I don't dislike Ben Stokes. <laughs> um, I don't think no, you do either. He's, he's this a, is the thing. He's, he's very, he's very likable. Yeah. He's, this is, this is what they talk about. He's, he's magnetic, he's charismatic and it's not just in the way that he plays, but you know, the way that he, spoke the interviews that he did for that program the way that he was really upfront about things at a, at a difficult time in in a lot of ways I mean that that is significant you know that packs yeah. a punch and, and the fact that he clearly commands loyalty from people close to him he's clearly a very good friend to people in it, it, you know someone like Joe Root Stuart Broad giving their perspectives on him and he strikes me as the kind of guy that if you're mates with him, he would do anything for you. Probably too much for you. Mm. Maybe too much for you, but that can be a character flaw that a lot of people have. And the fact that he thinks he can save the day and he's a bit of a Superman character as a cricketer, you can see that, can't you, with the way that he talks yeah. occasionally about taking a lot of responsibility on his shoulders. And, you know, the fact that he's only 30, well, I guess he's 31 now, but he'll be in the public eye for a really long time and remains mm. a fascinating character. And this absolutely contributes to that. Ben Stokes, Phoenix from the Ashes. You'll be able to watch that in all the usual places on, on Amazon, isn't it? So, uh, And that'll be out um, in the days and weeks to come. Indeed, by the time we publish this podcast, it'll already be out there. Jeff, let's uh, finish the podcast for today. This has been The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Uh, we'll do it all again uh, on the weekend show, Storytime, coming out in a couple of days. Bye for now. Bye. I had to go about it, write it out.